the second Samuel. Chapter number 23, verse number 8. Got dyslexic for a minute. Second Samuel, chapter number 23, verse number 8. I'm always grateful to have the opportunity to stand behind the pulpit anywhere and proclaim the Word of God. This week has been a bit of a unique and first experience for me. I've had the opportunity the past couple services. There's of you that may have noticed my wife and I were not here Wednesday night nor this morning. I was filling in at a church in South Knoxville. And uh, I remarked to my wife, this is the first time I've preached three services in a row. And uh, it's, it's a great privilege, great honor, and a tremendous responsibility. But you may have noticed, some of you, the swords that are behind me up here behind the choir wall. For those of you that were at the youth conference back in February, you may recognize the message that I have this evening, or at least a portion of it. Many times, those of us that are in charge of young people, whether it be parents or guardians, mentors, whatever the case may be, we'll bring our kids, we'll drop them off, and we never think about what happens after that until we pick them up. God has granted us here at the church some people that work with the youth that we know we can trust, and I'm grateful for that. I don't have to worry about what Brother Kerry is teaching. I don't have to worry about what Brother Jerry is teaching in junior church. I know that they're going to preach the Word of God. But by the same token... What's good for the goose is good for the gander. I had the opportunity to preach at the youth conference back in February, and this is the message that I brought. Or again, a portion of it is. Second Samuel chapter number twenty-three. If you find your place, I ask that you stand for the reading of God's word. We'll begin the reading in verse number eight. These be the names of the mighty men whom David had. The Tachmanite that sat in the seat, chief among the captains. The same was the Dino of the Esnite. He lift up his spear against 800 whom he slew at one time. And after him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the Ahohite, one of the three mighty men with David, when they defied the Philistines that were there gathered together to battle, and the men of Israel were gone away. He arose and smote the Philistines until his hand was weary, and his hand clave unto the sword. And the Lord wrought a great victory that day, and the people returned after him only to spoil. And after him was Shema, the son of Agia, Agi, the Hararite. And the Philistines were gathered together into a troop, where was a piece of ground full of lentils, and the people fled from the Philistines. But he stood in the midst of the ground and defended it and slew the Philistines, and the Lord wrought a great victory. And three of the thirty chief went down and came to David in the harvest time under the cave of Adullam. And the troop of the Philistines pitched in the valley of Rephaim. And David was then in hold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. And David longed and said, Oh, that one would give me drink of the water of the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. And the three mighty men break through the host of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink thereof, but poured it out unto the Lord. And he said, Be it far from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is not this the blood of the men that went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things did these three mighty men. Heavenly Father, as I come before your throne once again today and this evening, God, I ask for power from on high, Lord. I ask that you would anoint me with fresh oil. Lord, I ask that you would speak to each and every heart that's under the sound of my voice. 
Make us less like ourselves and more like you, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage and its sister account in the book of Second Chronicles are the only time that the word of God tells us about this man by the name of Eleazar. Not much is given to us about this man apart from this. We know that he was one of David's mighty men. We know that he was one of the three chief of the mighty men, one of David's personal guard, one of his close advisors in war. We know that he was a mighty man, and we know that he was one of David's greatest supporters while King Saul was hunting him. However, we don't know a whole lot else. But we know that he loved his king enough to lay down his life and risk it. We know that he loved his king enough to stand alone in a piece full of lentils, in a piece of ground full of lentils, and fight so hard and so long that his hand claved to his sword and could not let go. Each and every one of us within our lives, there's something that we cling desperately to. There's something that were it to be taken away, our entire life as we know it would be upended. Each of us, if we were to sit down and characterize our own lives with perhaps three words at most, there are certain things that we would define ourselves that we're clinging to. Over this past year and a half, many people have found what that thing that they're clinging to was and have seen it taken away. Perhaps it was their job. Perhaps it was the economy. Perhaps it was the socialization with people that they knew that suddenly was ripped away from them. For us as Christians, however, there should be something that we're holding on to that can never be taken away from us. Eleazar claimed to his sword. And I notice that there are three types of swords in people as I watch them. There is a great reason that I sit at the front of the church most services. And that is because I'm easily distracted. I like to watch people. And I, as in watching people, I see three types of Christians throughout all the different churches that I've been in and people that I've known outside of church. And I brought these three swords with me because they characterize the types of Christians that those people are. The first type of Christian that I see is the fake Christian. This sword is a training sword. It's made out of plastic. It's designed to be hit up against another one. In many cases, these are the people that I see. These are the pretenders. These are the lost people that want the fame and dignity that comes with bearing the name of Christ, if you will. They go to church on occasion. They see church as nothing more than a social club. A way to advance their careers. And they have absolutely no knowledge of the word of God. When the trouble comes... Their life is upturned. This sword, it's great to practice with. It's great to learn how to handle a blade. You can even do some things with it. You can handle it as a real sword, but you won't find it in the fight. If you used to wield this sword against an enemy, they'd laugh at you. You can tell these people by their Facebook pages, by their social media. 
Because you'll see one post saying, Lord, please heal our land. And the next, they're playing golf on Sunday morning. They'll have one post that has John 3.16. And the next is them flipping off the camera. They tell everyone they're Christian. They say, oh yeah, I, I love the Lord. But their life screams otherwise. They're a fake Christian. They place anything and everything ahead of the Lord. They see religion as nothing more than a tool. When the battle comes, they're not there. They're a fake Christian. The second type of Christian that I see is the polished Christian or the showcase Christian. This is a replica sword. It's meant to be a collector's piece. meant to hang on a wall or on a shelf. And this is the vast majority of Christians. They have that relationship with God, perhaps. There's been a time that they've trusted Christ, but they've never made it real. They've never committed. From looking at the outside in, they seem to have a relationship with God. They know the Word of God inside out. They can quote verse after verse of Scripture. They'll often talk about Jesus, but there's never been that time that they've had a personal walk with Christ. They come to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. But the rest of the week is theirs. They live the way that they desire. They have everything set together on Sunday morning. But on Monday morning at work or at school, they live like the devil. These people are set in their ways. The sword... It's not real flexible. If you notice me trying to flex the other one a couple minutes ago, it bent a little bit under the pressure. This one will not do so. It's set in its way. It's rigid. So is a showcase Christian. Because as soon as the preacher gets up and he preaches against the pet sin that they have, as soon as he tries to correct the things that's within their life, they bow up. And either they'll break or they'll get right with God. They make sure that they look just right. They spend a lot of time polishing their blade, if you will. They make sure that everything's in order when people look at them. And they refuse to go down to an altar to get things right. Because they're afraid of what people will think. They're too busy spending time polishing that blade. These are the people that they're afraid to be identified as friends with publicans and sinners. Because of what people may think. And when the battle comes, they fall apart. The sword, were you to swing it a few minutes, I'd, all I'd have to do is unscrew this a little bit and it would fall apart into literal pieces. And that is the showcase Christian. But then I see the third type of Christian. And I'm always careful to make sure people realize this is not my sword. The other two are. This is the sword of one of my friends. It was a colonel in the United States Marines. Unlike the other swords, this one has stood the test. And this is the real Christian. This is the sword that each of us should be carrying. But I find very few Christians that carry this sword, Brother Ken. Because, you see, you look at the sword and it's not the prettiest thing in the world. If you get real close to it, you can see that there's nicks and there's scratches along the blade from where it's been impacted against another. 
There's scars in the lives of those Christians that carry this sword. They look back at the times that they've been wrong with God when they've had sin in their lives. And they say, you know what? I messed up. I was wrong. But they don't try to hide those scars either. They don't polish them over. They let the grace of God show. They let God work in their hearts. And the word permeates their life. When the battle comes, the sword will stand the test. But what sword do we cleave to as Christians? Why is it that we should cleave to the real sword? The other swords are lighter. They're easier to carry. They're a lot prettier to look at. The other swords don't offend people. They're not a real weapon. What is it that's so special about that real sword? I see, number one, the power of the real sword. The real sword, real Christian faith, will always be based off the Word of God. The Bible tells us that the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And it has the power to affect our lives. It will affect our daily living. You read through the word of God and you see those men that they live for Christ. They walked with God and there was always a distinct difference in their life. Brother Toby often uses the example of Moses when he came off the mountain, how his face was shining. You couldn't deny that he had been in the presence of the Almighty. It made a distinct difference. It impacted his life. The disciples, when they stood before the Sanhedrin after the lame man had been healed at the temple gate, the Bible says that they took them and they questioned them. And they saw and marveled that they were unlearned and ignorant men. And the very next verse says, and they took note that they had been with Jesus. There is a distinct difference between the life of a believer that has committed themselves to Christ and those that are just in it for the glory. Those that are just interested in punching their ticket to go to heaven or tithing their time to church to get that, again, that fame, that dignity. The woman at the well, she was carrying that real sword after she got the living water. She went back. First thing she did, come see a man. They told me all that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Those men that knew her, they could look and they could say, there is something different about her. Nicodemus, he was a changed man. Even though he tried to hide it for so long, there came a point that he had to go and beg the body of Jesus along with Joseph and help to bury him. There came a point where he just couldn't hide it anymore. It affected his daily life. How much is it infected? How much is it affecting our daily lives as Christians? Not only does it have the ability to affect our daily life, but true Christianity has the power to affect our destiny. The Bible says in the book of Romans, how then shall they believe on him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they believe? I just butchered that all to pieces. How shall they believe on him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach except they be sent? So it is written, 
Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. The Word of God and true Christianity has the ability to show a lost person that they need Savior. Has the ability to take them out of the miry clay and set their feet upon a rock. The Bible says in the book of 1 Corinthians that it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. The world looks at us. They think that we're crazy because we get here three times a week and we hear someone stand up behind the pulpit and shout at us and spit all over the front row. They think that it's absurd. But God has chosen the foolishness to confound the wise. It has the ability to affect our destiny. It has the ability to affect our desire. When someone is fully surrendered to the will of God, they will find that their desires are changed to what they should be. We quote the verse so often, Delight thyself in the Lord and He will give thee the desires of thy heart. And a lot of people will take that verse out of context and they'll say, you know what? That means if I want a brand new night, brand new 1968, <laughs> 1968 Dodge Charger out there, midnight black, blue lightning down the side, He's going to give it to me. Doesn't work that way. <laughs> Believe me, I've tried. <laughs> Rather, when we delight ourselves in the Lord, He changes our desires of our heart. Lester Roloff always used to say, and Brother Toby quotes this often as well, that since he'd been saved, he drank all he wanted, he slept with women all he wanted, he cussed all he wanted, because God had changed his want-tos. When someone is living in true Christianity, their sole desire will be to please the Lord. Everything about their life will change. The old things will pass away and all things will become new. To where their only desire is how can I live for God? How can I tell someone about Him? And it will affect our desires. Not only does true Christianity have the power to affect, but it has the power to endure. It can endure persecution. You look at the book of Acts, as soon as the, the church there at Jerusalem began to be persecuted, the Bible says that they were scattered abroad. And as they were scattered abroad, they went everywhere preaching the word. Each and every time throughout history that the word of God has been persecuted, that the church has been restricted, God's spirit has seen fit to scatter us like wildfire. And as we go to reach the lost. True Christianity will endure persecution. You cannot silence the truth. It will out. Persecution has the unique ability to drive away those pretenders. Those that are only seeking that dignity. Because suddenly there's a price to be paid for standing as a Christian. It's It really strikes me as not really funny, but at the same time, funny. All those Jews that were taken to Babylon. Yet there were only four. Out of all of them. That were willing to risk their lives. To obey God. True Christianity endures persecution. It endures through preservation. Again that true Christianity will always be based off the word of God. God has seen fit to preserve his word for us throughout the generations. You look back at the history of the King James Bible and how God has preserved it. It is a miraculous thing. It's something that no person could ever do. 
Those that say that the Bible was written by man are sort of mistaken. They have studied their history closely enough. God has always left to himself those that will follow him. The message, I believe it was a couple weeks ago on Elijah. He said, I am, I, even I only am left and it is enough. And God reminded him there's still 7,000 people that have not bowed the knee nor kissed the bell. God's always left to himself that remnant that are willing to follow after him, that are willing to put him first. Because until he takes us out of here, his job's not done. He's going to make sure that he stays with us. So he will not abandon his people. Not only can it endure persecution and endure through preservation, but it endures pretenders. The Apostle Paul, even in his day, there were false prophets. There were those that would stand and preach Christ pretending to be a preacher. He wrote, I believe it was Church at Philippi or Corinthians, I can't remember which, but he said, some preach Christ of contention, supposing to add to my affliction. And then the next verse he goes on to say, notwithstanding, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. There are those that they would get up and they'd mock us for getting together and hearing the word of God. They say, oh yeah, you know what those people at Walridge Baptist Church are saying right now? They're saying Jesus saves. They're over there saying that Jesus is the only way to heaven. And they do it to make fun, but they're still speaking the truth. God can still use it. Against their will, he can use the devil's messengers. Clay's Mill Road Baptist Church in Lexington, Kentucky is the one that hosts the college that my wife went to where I had planned on going. But the pastor there told the story. They passed out tracks, go door to door. And they left one on a female pastor's door. She took it to her church and she proceeded to read the entire track in front of the congregation during the service. She was doing it to make fun, but they still heard the gospel. <laughs> it can endure pretenders. Number next, it has the power to equip. The true Christianity has the ability to equip us in doctrine. It has the ability to teach us what we believe. The Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy and he told him, those things that you've learned commit unto faithful men who will be able to teach others also. True Christianity will always regenerate itself, reproduce itself in others. Not only what we believe, but why. We believe it. It is not enough simply to know that we believe that Jesus came and died. It is not enough to know that we believe that he was born of a virgin, died on the cross, and raised again the third day according to the scriptures. We must know also why we believe it. Else we will be blown about by every wind of doctrine. And we will be moved from the gospel. It will equip us in doctrine, but it will equip us in duty as well. There's times as we go through life, that we just don't feel like going on anymore. That we're ready to give up. That we feel homesick and ready to go. We say, Lord, I, I just don't want to keep going on anymore. The Apostle Paul said, let us not grow weary in well-doing. But with that comes the very token that we do. True Christianity will urge us on. It will remind us that even though we suffer in this life, there's a better day coming. When we will stand in the presence of the Master. It gives us the ability to stand when opposition arises. When those that look around us 
and say that God is dead. When those that look around and say that the church is not essential, it gives us the ability to stand and boldly proclaim what thus saith the Lord and to live for Christ in an ungodly world. It has the power to encourage us. King David is my hero in the word of God. Outside of Christ, I read more of what David did than any other person. I love reading the account of when he stood against Goliath and faced him down and said, I come to you in the name of the Lord. I love to read the accounts of his warfare. It breaks my heart to read the account of David and Bathsheba. But yet there was a time that David came back to the city of Ziklag and he found that his city had been burned with fire. His wives and his children and wives and children of his men taken captive by the Amalekites. His men turned against him. They were ready to stone him and kill him. The Bible says that David encouraged himself in the Lord. He had that real sword, Brother Jim. He was able to keep keep on going even though everything looked hopeless. Paul and Silas had that real sword in the prison at Philippi. When they started singing praises and praying at midnight, they were able to encourage themselves. That true sword has the ability to encourage us when nothing else can. When our friends are all gone, the truth of God's word will still remain. When the songs have faded and the last notes of it as well have died away, and it seems that we can sing no more, God's word remains. When our leader has died and we find ourselves standing at the Jordan River, unsure if we are able to cross over into the promised land, God's word remains. When our faith is weak, God's word remains. I see, number next, not only the power of the real sword, but I see the protection of the real sword. We read in Ephesians 6, the armor of God, and there is only one that is given to us for defense. And that is the shield of faith. The real sword. Our faith, which is the victory. It is our defense against the attacks of the enemy. But we also find protection in the fellowship that comes with that sword. The fellowship with others that bear the sword along with us. That are able to lift us up when we stumble. And say, hey, you know what? It's hard right now. But let's keep going. Let's keep serving God. Let's stay in the fight. Fellowship with the one that's called us to wield the sword. The Bible tells us that we are co-laborers together with God. He's right there with us going through our lives. Lifting us up, encouraging us. Perhaps the greatest comfort in all the scripture is when Peter's getting ready to be tried and Jesus tells him, I've prayed for thee, that thy faith fell not. What an amazing thing to think. That the Savior of all the world would pray for a sinner like us. Anything less than true Christianity will be unable to handle the storms that life throws at us. We will not be able to stand the temptations when we have the opportunity to do wrong. The trials that come when everything is going wrong, the tire is flat, the fridge breaks, the air conditioning stops working. When all that goes wrong, it breaks us without true Christianity. The tasks when we grow weary in well-doing, 
we are able to keep going on if we are wielding that true sword. Number last, I see the price of the real sword. I spoke a couple moments ago the way that the Bible has been preserved for us. Our faith has been kept the same way. I see the price of martyr's blood. Down through the ages, so many men and women have died for the truth of God's word. The apostles being martyred one by one simply because they were going around preaching and teaching Christ crucified and risen from the dead and coming again. I think of men and women from Fox's Book of Martyrs, if you've ever read it. You know the horrors that happened, especially during the Middle Ages, as they were thrown into bags with snakes and tossed into a river, burned at the stake simply for believing on the name of Christ. The book of Hebrews, chapter number 12, starts off right off the bat. Wherefore, seeing we are compassed about by so great a cloud of witnesses, having just finished the great hall of faith and talking about those martyrs that died, were sawn asunder and were fed the lions and died looking for the promise of the Messiah. He said, wherefore, seeing we are compassed about, let us run with boldness. Let's pick up that sword and keep going because there's been too great a price paid us to simply lay it down now. I see the price of malignant bystanders. People are just waiting. They're watching us. Every time that you say that you're a Christian, it puts a target on your back because the world is watching to see if you are what you claim you truly are. They're watching for us to throw down the sword and give up in defeat so that they can sit back, laugh, and say, I guess their God wasn't so powerful after all. The undecided are watching. They're looking to see if we are who we say that we are. Waiting, perhaps trying to hold on to that 11th hour to trust Christ. If we give up the sword, then they're going to say, you know what, that wasn't it after all. What's the point? I see the price of merited bestowments. The Bible teaches us clearly that one day each and every person will stand and give an account to God tells us that in that day our works will be tried by fire of what sort they are. Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble. I wonder how many crowns we would lose on if we laid down the sword. I wonder if we were carrying the wrong sword, how much of that that we have would be burned up as wood, hay, and stubble simply because we weren't living for Christ, simply because we didn't have the right sword. And then number last, I see the price of Mary's babe. I had to alliterate it somehow. Jesus died on the cross. What more reason do we need? As he called his disciples, he told them one simple thing. If any man would be my disciple, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Our cross is the sword this evening. What are we cleaving to? Every head is bowed, every eye is closed as the pianist comes. What are you cleaving to? Are we cleaving to the sword? Or is there something else that we're holding on to desperately for life? Some fake assurance, whether it be of salvation, whether it be of peace, 
some purpose that we're trying to derive from this world. What are we cleaving to? Heavenly Father, as I come before you, God, I ask that you would take this message and that you would work in hearts. Lord, help us to cleave to the sword this evening, not to give up, but to keep pressing on the mark of the prize of the high calling of God, which is in Christ Jesus, Lord. Let us keep our eyes on you. In Jesus' name.